Proverbs 14 and verse 12, very popular verse. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Heavenly Father, we thank you, O Lord, for your word. We thank you, Father, for these great truths that are in your word. And we ask, Father, that you would be pleased to bless us as we, as we study your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. One of the pitfalls of always looking down is that we have a tendency to look to government to do what only God can do. It's one of the pitfalls. And one of the places where we see this manifest in our culture is in the vast human rights rhetoric that we that we hear all the time. We're hearing it on the news. Uh, we hear it in a lot of different places. We hear about uh, uh, the, the right to education, uh, the right to income, the right to employment. We hear about uh, women's rights, uh, minority rights, African-American rights. Uh, uh, really, there's uh, you know LGBT rights, uh, the right to a certain lifestyle. Uh, there's a lot of rights uh, that are being voiced uh, in our culture. Now, these issues are often handled with a, a lot of heat. Uh, people are pretty passionate about uh, a lot of these things. And uh, really, I've got to say, <laughs> right from the start, I should say this, I probably should have said this a couple of weeks ago, but this series, one of the greatest difficulties about this series has been trying to avoid sounding political. My goodness, has that been difficult to do? I mean, I don't want anyone to think that I'm standing on a stump here for right-wing politics or left-wing politics or that I'm standing on the stump for uh, a certain presidential candidate or I'm standing on the stump for Fox News or MSNBC. Uh, that's, not, <laughs> that's not what I'm trying to do. In fact, I'm trying, I'm trying to avoid sounding that way with everything that I have. Uh, the famous reformer Martin Luther used to put it this way. He said, if you're not addressing the important issues of the day with the gospel, you're not preaching the gospel. Uh, I've been set apart not to be a political commentator. I've been set apart to be a minister of the gospel. Uh, and I want to be faithful to that calling. But in being faithful to that calling, there are times when these are the very issues that you have to take up. And that is indeed what I'm doing. Uh, quite frankly, as I said in my pastoral prayer a few minutes ago, America is divided. We are so thoroughly divided all over the place, aren't we? Such division. Um, some of us maybe will remember times when the division was this great. I, I, in my own lifetime, I can't say that I remember any time where I would say that America has been this divided. Now, we have been in times past, for sure. But we're very divided right now. And this is a spiritual issue. It's a spiritual issue. This is not an issue that, can be, that, we, can be, that we can simply legislate each other out of. Legislation is not going to be able to bring people together like this. That's just simply not going to happen. The, the church is going to have to step in on this one. I really believe it's, if, if, this, if this division is going to be dealt with, it's going to have to be dealt with with the church. It's time to pony up and, and deal with this. I have been arguing that we're on a trajectory of despair. And you may recall in the first message, the first message was primarily about 
the perils of always looking down. Do you remember that phrase, always looking down versus looking up? And I've been committing these sermons to writing, and uh, I've noticed that as I'm doing this, that I'm constantly using this phrase, looking down and looking up. I'm constantly using this phrase, looking down, looking up. And it, it's interesting to me that uh, much of the misery that we experience, whether it be seemingly mundane, that it's, it's Monday, you know, that kind of attitude, is the result of always looking down. And what do I mean by always looking down? It's always looking down is cutting ourselves off from God, cutting ourselves off from any kind of uh, a sense that there's an eternity out there. Uh, embracing the here and now as if this is all that there is. All that there is is uh, uh, living for for Friday evenings, Friday through Sunday, uh, that there's nothing else beyond that. Uh, looking at life as if, you know, the particular problems that we're facing right now are it. Um, so much of us are caught up in the tyranny of this. And in the following message, I, I briefly explained a major philosophy in the West that's holding us together. You might recall uh, when I'd mentioned that, you know, that people, groups, nations, they have to have something holding them together. There has to be some kind of catalyst that holds us together. R.C. Sproul calls it glue. There has to be some kind of glue that's holding us together. And I introduced a philosophy to to you. Some of you are very familiar with the philosophy of secular humanism, but for others, that's a new topic uh, one that maybe you haven't you've heard of, but you don't know exactly what it is. Well, secular humanism is the glue, the catalyst that is holding all of us together. It's and it's it's not just holding us together, but it's carrying us along on this trajectory that I've been talking about. Uh, How is it carrying us along? Uh, it is this. It is indeed this philosophy. It's in the context of this philosophy that our laws are being written. A lot of times we think about these particular laws and we look at these laws and we think, my goodness, how can you possibly come up with some of these laws? I mean, you're not going to begin to understand how it's possible until we begin to, until we begin to see that these laws are being written and they're not being written out of a vacuum. They're being written out of this philosophy that's holding us together, secular humanism. And as laws are written, we're being carried along. Secular humanism is also writing the policies. It's, it's crafting the policies, the public policies that we're to give our amen to. And as it's doing this, we're being carried along. Uh, secular humanism is also creating the curriculum that our kids are studying in school. And as this is happening, as kids are being indoctrinated in this, we're being carried along. And secular humanism is a philosophy that wipes away any notion of a personal God in the Christian Judea sense. A God who would give us the book. A God who would give us what we read and study on a daily basis. There's no Ten Commandments. There's no gospel. There's no revelation. All that there is, is what we can see, feel, measure, taste, and touch. Well, again, I mean, secular humanism says, fine, you can have those Ten Commandments hanging in your house, in your living room wall if you want, but we won't have them hanging in our courtrooms. You can believe in a personal God who's revealed himself at home around the dinner table, but we're not going to have this in the classroom. And we have largely embraced that and said, you know, it kind of makes sense, you know, I mean, 
Everybody believes differently, so let's keep all of our beliefs at home. And this makes sense to us. We've bought into this, haven't we? We've all embraced it. It's holding us together. Now, last time, I began to show the consequences of this. And last time, I attempted to show that we've lost the ability in doing all of this. We have lost the ability to establish one of the things that is essential to our existence as human beings. We have lost the ability to establish human dignity. And that was, that was what I was trying to be on about last week. And this week I want to do the same thing, only I want to show that the same thing holds true for human rights. Human rights. Another, it's another issue that is essential to our existence as human beings, is human rights. Now, all of us undoubtedly have heard of inalienable rights, uh, you know, I want to begin this morning by looking at those, looking at inalienable rights. And uh, is there such a thing as an inalienable right? We'll start with that question. And what is an inalienable right? It's that right that uh, we are said to possess uh, by virtue of being human. It's a right that cannot be taken away from us. It's a right that we have because we are human beings. Okay, do we have, do we have these rights? The second paragraph of the Declaration of, the In- of Independence famously reads, quote, We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So the first question I want to take up this morning was, were the framers correct? Uh, have we been endowed with rights that cannot be taken away? Well, uh, turn with me to Genesis 9, 6. Genesis 9, 6. You'll find that on page 6 if you're using the church's Bible. Genesis 9, 6. It says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Now, this verse here establishes the heinousness of murder, if you will. Right? It's pretty easy to see, correct? It establishes the heinousness of murder. And this is going to be an important issue here in a few minutes, so hold on to that that murder is heinous, that it is inherently evil. Kind of hang on to that because we're going to pick that up here in a few minutes again. When a person takes the life of another person, he or she takes the life of one who has been created in the image of God. And it's because of the fact that he is or she has been created in the image of God, it intensifies, it serves to intensify the heinousness of the act of murder, doesn't it? I think we all have a basic grasp of that, do we not? Now, um, furthermore, because no one has the right to murder another human being, we can infer from that that as human beings, we have the right to life. Does that make sense? That's an inalienable right. So we ask, were the framers correct in this? Absolutely, they were correct in this. 
And this is the logic on which uh, these rights were uh, adopted. Uh, this command has been given by the highest authority, God himself, and therefore cannot be revoked. I mean, no person or state has the right to overturn this. Does that, does that make sense? So therefore, we say that every human being has an inalienable right to life. I mean, uh, we each have a right to live until such time an almighty God calls us to himself. Uh, we don't have the right to take that away from another human being. Uh, uh, no one, including ourselves, has the right to end our lives. Now, I, I want you to pick up on a word that I'm using very carefully here. I'm using the word murder as I say this. I'm not using the word kill. Because one of the reasons, there's many places that I could develop this in the scriptures, but I've chosen Genesis 9-6 because if you look at Genesis 9-6 again with me, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. This verse not only is showing us the heinous, heinousness of murder, but it's also showing uh, the people of God the appropriate punishment for murder. Now, I don't want to get into capital punishment this morning. In fact, this morning, I'm going to stay very close to my notes. There are a zillion rabbit trails that I could go down, and I quite frankly don't trust myself. I'm staying with my notes so that I don't do that. We have a lot of material to cover this morning, so I am going to stay like this, okay? I don't want to get into capital punishment this morning. We'll do that another time. Um, and nor do I want to get into the subject of just war. That's another subject where it, in, in times of just war, it's appropriate to kill uh, another human being. I, I don't want to get into those discussions because it, the, those, are, those are complicated discussions and we'll do that another time. All I want to say this morning for the base, just for the purposes of developing inalienable rights is that murder is heinous. We see the heinousness of murder and authority beyond the state has set God himself has said that it is inherently evil to murder another human being. And we infer from that that all human beings have the right to life. Does that make sense? Uh, let's do this a few other times. We'll give a few other examples. Uh, if you'll turn with me to Exodus 20. You might say, goodness gracious, it seems like we're hopping all over the place this morning. Well, it's because we are hopping all over the place this morning. Exodus 20, page 61, if you're using the church's Bible. Verse 1, and God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Uh, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Uh, here we see that the Lord is reminding his people first and foremost of the fact that he's redeemed them. And I think really, if I might just go off on the side just for a moment, I promise it only be for a moment, is that this is an important thing to hold on to when you read this whole story. You know, I reread it this morning uh, just to reread it. And, and uh, you know, when you get to, to the end of the account and you see the the, the, the thunder and the lightning and all of this and the uh, God instilling fear in people. We need to remember that this is all couched in the fact that God has just redeemed them. God is coming to us. He's approaching us as a redeemer. And you'll recall the ancient history. Uh, Israel had been, uh, had been enslaved in Egypt under 
uh, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and they cried out to God, didn't they? They cried out to God, deliver us from this horrible slavery. And God raised Moses up and he delivered them. And now he is, he is uh, approaching them. He is coming to them as their redeemer. He's identifying himself as the redeemer. And uh, uh, he gives us what we call the, the Ten Commandments here. The first of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, uh, whenever we get, whenever we, we study the commandments, we need to understand that there is a requirement by the commandment and there is a prohibition by the commandment. Let me put it another way. The, the, because of the commandment, there's things we ought to do. And because of the cam- commandment, there's things we shouldn't do. And the Westminster Shorter Catechism picks up on this. And uh, it says, okay, what, uh, what should be done according to verse 3? Uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 46, puts it like this. The first commandment requires us to know and acknowledge God to be the only true God and our God and to worship and glorify him accordingly. I'm going to read that to you again. The first commandment. What should we do as a result of the first commandment? We should know and acknowledge God to be the only true God and our God and to worship and glorify him accordingly. Uh, we're commanded to do what we're doing right now. This, this is, we're, we're commanded to do this. We're commanded to, to worship God. Now, what should not be done Uh, is the worship of any other person. And again, if I might share the shorter catechism, question 47, it asks, what is forbidden in the first commandment? Answer, the first commandment forbids the denying or not worshiping and glorifying the true God as God and our God and the giving of that worship and glory to any other, which is due him alone. Okay. Now, again, this command comes to us from the highest authority. And there's a command for us to worship God from the highest authority. Therefore, no one has the right to tell us not to worship. Correct? There is no authority above God. They can say, no, you're not to do this. So you see what's being inferred here is the right to worship. It's, a, it's, a, it's an inalienable right. As human beings, we were created to worship. We are in possession by, by, by virtue of our, our DNA, I might say. I use this, this phrase uh, figuratively. We were created to worship. And no one has the right to stop us from this worship. You know, we, we could continue to establish this in verse four. If you look at verse four, you show, the second commandment, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Um, you know, again, here we have a requirement and a prohibition. You know, the shorter catechism, question 50. Uh, The second commandment requires the receiving, observing, and keeping pure and entire all such religious worship and ordinances as God has appointed in his word. Let me say that again. The second commandment requires the receiving, observing, keeping pure and entire all such religious worship and ordinances as God has appointed in his word. 
let me, let me put that to you another way. Why am I doing what I'm doing right now? This is part of uh, what the scriptures call us to do in terms of our worship. We're to preach the word of God. Woe is to me if I preach not the gospel. Uh, we, we can go through the scriptures and we can, we can easily identify that this needs to be, that the preaching of God's word needs to be a part of keeping the worship pure, uh, of keeping it right. Does that make sense? Same goes for the singing of songs and praying. Why do we, why do, we do what we do in worship? Did we just make this up? Is this just tradition? Is it just no? It's uh, there's a principle uh, in, in the church that uh, that the ARP in the ARP church and in many conservative reformed churches, and I think it should be in all churches, is that it's called the regulative principle of worship. That God has prescribed the way He wants to be worshipped. And again, I don't want to go. I could go on a rabbit trail very easily and exhaust our time talking about that alone. But all I want to say is that uh, why are we doing the things we're doing? We can we can develop that from Scripture for what we're doing. Um, now, again, we have a uh, we have a requirement in the second commandment. We have a prohibition. Question fifty one of the catechism asks, "What is forbidden in the second commandment?" Answer: The second commandment forbids the worshiping of God by images or any other way not appointed in His Word. Let, let, let me flesh that out for you. You know, we have a projector now. And we're hoping one of these days soon, we still have to get a few more goodies before we can install it, but we're hoping one of these days is going to be hanging right straight about above my head here. I hope it's up there to stay. And it's going to be projecting things, you know, behind here. And um, uh, I, I'm okay with us getting a projector as long as what's projected back there is done in purity. Namely, that there's lyrics back there uh, it would be great right now to have the catechism questions up right now because that would be really helpful for you rather than hear me read them. You could see them on the screen. But I am vehemently opposed to having Grand Canyon scenes floating around while we're worshiping. Really? I think it's in violation of the second commandment. I'd be vehemently opposed to that. You see? That's why these things are important. Uh, this prohibits us from worshiping of idols or worshiping God in ways that are not appointed by him. Um, no one has the right to force us to do this, you see. And this further, this further, furthers the right to worship, doesn't it? Does that make sense? Do you see that inferred from here? You okay with that? Okay, skip with me down to verse 15. The nice short little verse right there. See it? You shall not steal. You shall not steal. Okay. Uh, when we make the same application to this commandment that we've made to the others, what do we come up with? Well, uh, the logic is this. God has told us we're not allowed to steal each other's stuff. Right? Okay. W what is implied by that? Well, it's in what implied by that is you have a right to private property. If you go out and you buy the stuff or you're inheriting the stuff or someone gives you the stuff, it's your stuff. And I don't have, we don't have any right to go around stealing each other's stuff, do we? And inferred by that, we have the right to private property. 
Um, let's do one more. This time, let's go to the New Testament to the passage we read earlier from Galatians. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. Uh, page 974, if you're using the uh, church's Bible. Uh, we read from this, from this context this morning. If you look down to verse 27... For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now look with me to verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, before I talk about what this text is teaching, let me mention what it isn't teaching. Uh, it's not teaching that our identity is lost as we come to Christ. Okay, it's not teaching that there's no more boys and girls in Christ Jesus. Uh, but that there's no more uh, uh, Jews and non-Jews. Okay, how do I know that? Well, there's there's quite there's a number of ways we could we could we could learn this. I mean, if if just listen, you don't need to turn here because we're we're flipping around quite a bit this morning. But in Revelation chapter seven verses nine to ten, the Apostle John he gazes into heaven and he gets a glimpse. He says, this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Uh, if ethnicity and identity is lost as we come to Christ, then how is it that the Apostle John, gazing into the heavens, can recognize ethnic diversity in the worship and community that he sees there? It's the, the, the miracle of the gospel is the fact that racial lines come down. The Apostle Paul uses the phrase, the wall of hostility has come down. Those barriers that divide, that division comes down under the gospel. William Hendrickson puts it like this. All racial bigotry, chauvinism, and snobbery is condemned here. Here the truth be that before God all men are equal receives its best. We have the, the rights of equality established here, don't we? We're all equal. I'm no better than uh, anyone else in this room, and there is no one in this room any better than me. And the same thing applies as we go out there, doesn't it? The right of equality is established. And this is why I have to preach this material. I think you're starting to see where we're headed here. I mean, we're different. We're all different. America is a place where there's a lot of different kinds of people, isn't there? Believe it or not, this little valley here is a place where there are a lot of different types of people. Lots of different types of people right here uh, in the valley. We have a tendency to want to fellowship with those who are like us, who think like us, talk like us, believe like us, etc., etc., etc. That's where we're most comfortable, isn't it? Um, well, I think that remembering that we're people all created in the image of God, I think that really helps us to be able to... Um, to be able to at least begin to dissolve the wall that exists between us and those who are different than us. 
I think it's a step in the right direction. On Wednesday night, I gave the example of this, that I was watching the news and there was a person on there who was speaking really in that tone. You know, there's a tone of voice that's hateful and very much speaking in that tone. And um, as they were doing that, they were advocating ideas that I find absolutely repugnant. And I brought up the little Nerf brick, you know, the little foam brick uh, that some people have when they're watching the Super Bowl game and things don't go the way that they go and they have that little brick that they whiz at the TV, you know, so they don't ruin their TV. Well, I don't, you know, the Super Bowl don't bother me, but that comment, I, you know, I have to say that if it hadn't been for weeks of studying this idea of being created in the image of God, it really does dissolve. As I'm watching this person, I'm thinking, you're so lost. And instead of using the energy to pick up this foam brick, I don't have one, but instead of picking up this foam brick and hurling it at the TV, maybe I ought to use that energy to pray for this person instead. You see, seeing that this person who is saying this divisive and hatred stuff that has no ground or even any real sound logic to it. Uh, in hearing all of that, I, I can see, I think I can see a man who's created in the image of God. I see a man who is lost. These are far from biblical things that, that he is uh, spreading around and publishing all over the place. But I say this is only a first step because uh, only Christ can bridge these gaps. And one of the greatest testimonies to the power of the gospel is the fact that it brings people together who would otherwise not be together. That was one of the powerful testimonies of the gospel in the first century. And it's been a powerful testimony of the gospel in every century since. And it will be a powerful testimony to this century, too. If the church ponies up to the division that we have going on everywhere and through the gospel and the preaching of Christ and him crucified, we apply that to the particular issues that are going on today. And we see the hostility that is being hurled by uh, folks such as this. And we see the hostility that's on the opposite side, because listen, this 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 hatred's going on on both sides. You can hear it on both sides. You name the issue, you name the division and you can find voices on both sides that are, I think, equally hateful. What brings this down? It's the gospel. It's the power of the gospel. Now, we could, we could say a lot more about inalienable rights, but we've got to say a little bit more here. Uh, there's, there's a number of things that have to be said this morning. Uh, while it is true that all human beings have certain inalienable rights, uh, are all of the rights that we hear about in our culture inalienable? And the answer to that is emphatically no. And we need to learn how to establish one from the other. Uh, when we think about human rights, we need to always be making a distinction between moral rights and legal rights. Moral rights and legal rights. Let me give you an example. Uh, in the United States, women have the legal right to an abortion. But do they have a moral right to it? And the answer is no, because we've just covered that. Genesis 9-6. So here you see is a case where we have a legal right to do something, but we do not have 
a moral right to do it. We have an inalienable right to life. The state has given a legal right to end the life. Does that make sense? The next example, uh, before I give the next application, I want to be really sensitive because much of the human rights rhetoric that we hear today concerns the LGBT community, the lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender community, and really um, a lot of the, the rhetoric, you know, it, it pertains to the right to same-sex marriage. And, um, you know, I, I want to be really sensitive. Before I say anything, I want to cover a couple of things here. That over the course of our ministry, Tammy and I have become friends with people who are in, that would, be, would, would describe themselves as being in the LGBT community. And I want to emphasize something very strongly. They are our friends. They're not ministry projects. They're our friends. I can say they're our friends because they've done kind things for us. We have done kind things for them. There's an understanding between us that Tammy and I don't embrace their lifestyle. We, we, don't, we don't embrace that. We can't embrace it as pauper. But they care for us. And I could, I could describe some of the things that they've done for us, but if I did, I would give up their identity, and I won't do that. And we've done things for them. They know that we care about them, and we know that they care about us. And secondly, we need to understand something, and I shared this on Wednesday night, is that th these partners are in love with each other. I mean, let's not forget that. They're in love with each other. Love is one of the most powerful bonds that, that we can experience. I mean, what, what, what sends a mom into a burning building to, to rescue her child? Is she worried about what the neighbors will think if she doesn't do it? It's love. It's love. And some people have a tremendous attraction for members of the same sex. Some, some people do, and they fall in love. And, and convincing them that what they're doing is wrong is a tough sale. It feels right to them. You know, it's, um, uh, it, it, it feels right. And so if it feels so right uh, to them, they, they feel it's oppressive to keep them apart. I'm just describing, as best as I know how, to describe how they're feeling. I personally have never wrestled with same-sex attraction. I've never done it. I have attempted to try to understand it uh, through my friends who do wrestle with it. And it's just this overwhelming desire. And they believe from their point of view that it's oppressive uh, to try to inhibit this. It's oppressive to, uh, to try to stop this. I'm just telling you how I, I believe they feel. My acquaintance with these folks has helped me understand this in part. Now I say only in part because I've never wrestled with this. But one thing I can understand is I have wrestled with sin. My sins are different. I say this a lot whenever I meet. Some of you have heard me say this in counseling. When I meet people with counseling, I say, listen, I want you to understand something, okay? I haven't necessarily wrestled with exactly what you're wrestling with, but I'm wrestling with sin. My sin is different than your sin. But we have this commonality. 
I wrestle with sin too. And sometimes it gets me. In Christ Jesus, I have been set free from it. But sometimes I fall to it. Does that all sound familiar? Now, I think, I think, I think to myself, listen, okay, before Christ intruded in my life, I didn't really want to be free from my sin. Does that sound familiar? I was okay with it. I mean, I realized it was wrong, but I didn't think I was that bad. I thought it was okay. I'm not doing things that are that awful bad. Did I really want free from it? Maybe, maybe in the way that I would like to have, you know, gone on a good exercise program and started a good diet program. But how long does that last? But then Christ intruded in my life. And as Christ intruded in my life, I saw it wrong. I saw it as something that was, that was violating him. That I was doing wrong against him. And that's when things began to change. So, you see, I, if I was in a relationship, a same-sex relationship, and people are telling me that it's wrong, and it feels so right, I'm... I'm not sure I'd want to hear that. In fact, I think that I wouldn't want to hear that. I'm trying to describe as best as I can what I think folks are are going through. And one of the reasons why I'm trying to describe this as best I can is because many have attempted to minister to the LGBT community. And I would like to say that they all are well-intended. I know that many of them are well-intended, but given some of the speech that I've heard from people from the church as they have attempted to minister to the LGBT community. I got to say, it doesn't sound very loving. Maybe some of you have heard it too. I was on the website. I was on the, on the internet, just poking around as I was thinking about this point. And I'm on these websites that I'm ashamed of. They're, they've got, like you say, human rights, and then it goes right into the LGBT community, and it has like human rights and there's there's flames of fire you know the big h has flames inside it and the u has flames inside it and there's this inferno um this inferno um uh graphics all over the place really i mean do, does anybody here think that that would be helpful and I think this is what's fueling a lot of this uh, hate speech. You know, it's, I think we're going to I think that we're on our way to a day when a sermon even like this one. Uh, I don't think anyone's going to be able to accuse me of hate speech as I say that homosexual homosexuality is a sin. I don't know how anyone could accuse me of this being hate speech, but somebody somebody even now may listen to this on the Internet and say, you know, this is hate speech. This is not there's no hatred um, that I'm aware of between myself and these friends that we have. Um, but I think we're going to come to a day where any mention of this is going to be labeled as uh, hate speech and is going to be a crime. Uh, listen, the answer to all of this is Christ. We need to remember homosexuality is a sin. I think we all know that. But if we want to minister to people, who are in that community, let's also be mindful that slander is a sin, that pride is a sin, that, like, think of your own vices that you have. They are sins too. I, I, think, I, I think until we do that, we don't have, really have any business ministering to anybody, quite frankly. 
because um, we're not going to be able to minister in love. When Jesus comes, the, the, the picture that I like to put in my mind when I come alongside of somebody in counseling is the picture of Jesus coming down the Mount of Olives into the city of Jerusalem and he looks upon the city of Jerusalem and he looks upon all of the filth of Jerusalem and how he knows they're going to reject him. And what is his attitude? Is he grinning and smiling? He's weeping. We're told that he weeps. And it's from that platform that we must minister. Our feelings are broken like the rest of our faculties. But until Christ comes in our lives, we have a tendency to allow our feelings to be the arbiter of truth, don't we? What's right? What feels right? What's wrong? What feels wrong? It's not until Christ until Christ invades that place that things change. But we've got to reflect Christ into the lives of people. Amen? So much more needs to be said about this, but we have a couple of other things. They're short, they're brief. Um, one question I want to take up is, can the state establish inalienable rights? We've talked about inalienable rights. We've talked about uh, legal rights. Okay. The question we have now is, okay, can the state establish inalienable rights? That's the question I want to take up. I mean, all this rhetoric about human rights is not happening in a vacuum. It's happening in the context of secular humanism, right? It's a philosophy that denies... um, any existence of a personal God, again, okay, there's no book. Okay, we gotta, we got to get rid of this. We take this out of the picture. And when we take this out of the picture, can we now establish human rights? That's the question I want to take up. Uh, and in the law, a distinction is made between crimes. Has anybody ever heard these terms? They're law terms. You might never have heard them, but mala probita. Has anyone ever heard that term? Mala probita versus mala se. Malaprobita is a is a phrase. Uh, it's a it's a it's a crime that's a crime because the state says it's a crime. When we leave here, and we get in our cars and we pull out on Sixth Street, we're going to come to this little red thing. It's going to say stop. Uh, some of us are going to be inclined to do that. Hopefully, we'll all be inclined to do that. But uh, should we just plow right through, uh, then we have uh, we have committed a crime that's malaprobita. It's a crime. Uh, that's a crime because the, the state of West Virginia is calling it a crime. Uh, other crimes are mala and se. The crimes that are mala and se are crimes that are crimes because they are inherently evil. Remember I asked you to hold on to that phrase a little while ago, uh, that murder is inherently evil. Uh, committing murder is a it is a crime uh, Mala and say, and uh, uh, murder is not simply wrong because the state says so. Murder is wrong because it's inherently evil. Correct? Does that make sense? Okay. Uh, now, in a secular humanistic culture, there's no higher authority than the state. Remember, we got rid of this. We don't have a personal God who's given us the book. Therefore, we don't have the Ten Commandments. They're down. They're off the courtroom walls. Okay? 
So the highest authority is the state. Therefore, murder can only be wrong because the state says so. Does that make sense? So it's male prohibita. It's not male in se. Uh, but who is the voice of the state? And are these individuals bound by the laws they've created? In other words, if they are the highest authority, who rules over them? Who holds them accountable? We have leaders in this country who are not being held accountable by the laws of the land, and this will always happen when there is no higher authority than the state. And furthermore, when the state is the highest authority, what is to stop citizens from rebelling against the state? After all, the state is a group of people like us. So what's to stop citizens of the state saying, listen, who are you to tell me what to do when I've had enough? So you see, when we get rid of the book, we get rid of law and order, and what's replaced with it is lawlessness and anarchy. Does that make sense? Lawlessness and anarchy. What do we have happening? We have lawlessness and anarchy. I mean, this is the trajectory we're on. We have citizens that are defying the authority of law enforcement. They're just defying the authority of law enforcement. And we have leaders who are defying the laws of the land. Only Christ can set us free. You see, so it's kind of funny. You throw away the book and you're, you're really throwing away it all, aren't you? One last thought here. It's, impar- it's important that we recognize that up till now I've been speaking about rights before other people. All of the rights that I've talked about now are rights that we have on a horizontal plane. Sometimes you'll ask somebody, and uh, you'll ask a theologian, is there any such thing as inalienable rights? And you'll hear them say no. Maybe some of you thought I was going to say no at the beginning of this, the way I was couching the questions, and I was kind of doing that to make you think a little bit. Uh, there's a sense where we could say no if, if we're uh, suggesting that we have these rights before God. Do we have any rights before God? Well, we have the kind of rights before God that a person convicted of treason would have before his king. We have no rights before God. Just put, put, your, put your finger on your pulse here. Do you feel it beating? Feel me times it's beating? Every single time is a gift of grace. Our lives are a gift of grace. We have, we have no rights before God. Every breath we take, we do not deserve. We live on grace and grace alone, as we sometimes sing. And before God, we can claim no rights. But this God who owes us nothing, has come in the person of Jesus Christ to give us salvation, hasn't he? Amen.
Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the grace to get through a long and, and difficult discussion and one that I think, Father, really reaches into the very epitome and center of the things that we're experiencing now, both locally and statewide and federally. And Father, we pray, Lord, that you'll help us to really uh, deeply digest these things, Father, that we may understand, but that we also may have compassion for those who are different than us, compassion for those who disagree with us, compassion for those, Father, uh, who are on the opposite side, if you will, but that, Father, by way of the gospel, by the way of loving people who are created in your image, by the way of bringing the gospel, by the way of bringing Jesus to bear on these things, Father, that the divisions can be brought, brought down. So, Father, we pray, Lord, that you, you will transform your church, transform us into agents of change, into the salt and light of the earth that you've called us to be. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.